what will probably be a typically long journey through First Peter chapter one. Uh, yeah, First Peter. Uh, we started in chapter one, and the greeting, the I guess that you'd call it greeting, the um, salutation. I think is another word for that. In First Peter, takes the first uh, five verses just to say hello, uh, but it's packed with doctrine just in the meanings of the words that he chose to use. And you remember that although, yes, Peter is the writer, this is God's word. God chose to use these words. So <clears throat> I underscored about 30 of the words in these first five verses, and last week we only got through the first 13 of them. Uh, we didn't even get done with verse 2. So we're going to open up in prayer and then dive right back in. Father in heaven, we come to you in humility, knowing that we're not adequate to teach your word. We know that we're not adequate to understand, but we do know that we have the Holy Spirit and that he, that you and the person of the Holy Spirit are going to superintend over our hearts, that as a group we can look to you to teach us, that we can learn, that we can see your word transforming our lives. We can see the character of God being recreated in us that is reproduced in us that we can see the, the the characteristics of the holy god are starting to show up in our lives because we belong to you because we're your children as we go into your word we ask that you'd give us illumination in our minds that you'd help us to understand in jesus name <clears throat> so last week we got through almost all of verse two we got through the meanings of the word Peter, the word apostle of Jesus, of Christ, of the strangers, who they are and why they're called that. Um, the, the doctrine of election we just touched on. We realize there's whole books written on it. I'm not trying to repeat all that. The election and the foreknowledge. Uh, we touched on, on the word God, that is the office of God. That's not his name. Uh, the Father, and with that we touched on the Trinity. We touched on what sanctification means when it says through sanctification of the Spirit and the third member of the Godhead, the Spirit, <clears throat> and obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. So that's as far as we got last, last week. And to summarize, we saw that what this is building toward is extremely firm teaching regarding the security of the believer. Everything we saw in there pointed towards the eternality of our relationship with God, that once you're born into his family, you're his permanently. I know there's a lot of arguments about that. I struggled with it for years because I'd hear both arguments and I didn't know what to think. But as I studied God's word more and more and more, I realized, no, it's very, very clear. I don't have to bicker back and forth. And that the people that were arguing against it were not teaching God's word, they are teaching human reasoning. They're saying, but that doesn't make sense. Well, sorry, it doesn't have to make sense. You know, the Trinity doesn't make much sense either from a human perspective. I do not have to understand. I do have to faithfully teach it. Okay. So we're going to move on. The next word I had underscored here, the two were grace and peace. Uh, in every one of the epistles, except for the book of Hebrews, uh, begins with that blessing, grace and peace, and it's always in that order. The word grace is frequently... It can be, at least, frequently misused. We have other meanings for it in our daily use. We say that dancer is just the model of grace. Uh, 
ballet or whatever it is, or you watch a horse running across a pasture and say, man, look at the grace and power. It's not the kind of grace we're talking about here. When he says grace and peace be unto you, grace unto you and peace be multiplied, the word grace here means unmerited favor. It means God giving you something you don't deserve. We're going to talk about that a lot, but the idea behind grace is that, no, you did not earn this. No, you do not deserve this. Okay? We're going to talk briefly about Romans chapter 6, verse 23, because it says the wages of sin is death. Okay, that means that's what we've earned. That means what we deserve is permanent separation from God. But that's not what he gave us. The other half of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he gave us. That's grace. I did not earn that. Okay? And grace always precedes peace. We, we can't have peace without God's grace. I did not and cannot earn the honor that God has given to each of us by becoming his children, that we've been born again by his spirit. Again, that's grace. I cannot earn that. There's nothing I can do to earn it or even to keep it. And we're going to see that by the end of today's message. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says that as a believer, as somebody who's already trusted Jesus as my Savior, I'm already seated in the heavens with him. I have a hard time with that because I don't feel that way. I feel like I'm standing in front of a bunch of people that are looking at me. You know, No, God says I'm seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. I'm seated on the throne with him. Why? Because I placed my trust in him, and the moment I placed my trust in him, he says the Holy Spirit placed me into the body of Christ that I'm permanently a part of his church, singular. Not church like a local assembly. His, the, the body of Christ at large, most of whom are already with him, and I'm permanently a part of him. So I'm seated with him. I, I was resurrected with him. I was raised up, ascended with him. And God says we're coming back with him when he comes again. So this is not, this kind of grace is not a feeling type thing when you say, oh, that's so gracious. No, not that kind of a thing. It's a matter of fact. It's a matter of God giving me something that I didn't earn. Okay. What about peace? Because these do always come together. Well, there's several kinds of peace mentioned in Scripture. The primary one <clears throat> that we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore being justified, that means declared righteous, by faith, that's the avenue through which we approach God, therefore being justified by grace, we have peace with God. This is not the peace of God that's different, nor is it the kind of peace that we're looking for uh, with each other or the internal peace that we feel is peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says that we were all enemies of God. It says, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. The just for the unjust. I don't, you know, I don't feel like an enemy of God. I never felt like an enemy of God, even when I was an atheist. I would have laughed at the idea. How do you be an enemy of something that doesn't exist? See, I didn't believe there was a God, so how could I be his enemy? But God says that we all start off there, that we start off as enemies of God. And while we were enemies, says Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. And the result of entering in by faith, as we talked last week, the result of that is that we have peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. We're no longer at odds with him. The next kind of peace that we talk about in scriptures 
by the way, that first kind of peace is called a positional truth. Because you're in Christ, you're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer at odds with him. The next kind of peace we're going to talk about is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Be anxious for nothing. This is an inside thing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Really? Okay, how many of you are experiencing that kind of peace all the time? Well, I struggle with that. You know, I've suffered from depression for the last 50 years, and... Yeah, there's times I'm not feeling much peace because I'm looking around at all the things around me that are, you know, the politics, and sometimes I feel like I just can't read the news anymore because it's so distressing. And there's times when somebody's telling me about a situation and I feel like I can't listen to that right now. It's just driving me under. Okay, But what God's solution to that was in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is be anxious for nothing. Don't allow these things to depress you. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, this is conditional truth. This is not something you're guaranteed to have. It's something that's offered to you. There's no promise that you're going to have it all the time. You have to choose to receive it all the time. That's a daily choice, moment-by-moment choice many times. But grace and peace always come in that order. Without God's grace, that peace that he offers in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is not available to you or to me. Okay. It has to do with God's grace. And finally, there's the kind of peace where we seek to make peace with one another. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's the kind of peace between people. Again, that's conditional truth. It's something that we're supposed to be doing. My peace with God is guaranteed by Jesus' blood at the cross. The biblical order is always grace and then peace. The next thing I have underscored is blessed. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is verse 3. This word blessed, it seems a strange thing because I think, well, God blessed me. How would I bless him? He has the wherewithal to bless me. I got nothing to offer him. How can I bless him? Well, there's a couple of different words that are translated bless. The one that's translated blessed here mean, is eulogetos, and the, the Greek prefix eu, eu, means good. It's just a prefix that means good. So when they talk about eugenics, they mean we're going to recreate the human race by weeding out all those bad genes. The, uh, when we say the euangelion, that's the Greek word for the gospel, the good news. Okay, So the, the prefix eu means Good, you logos. Logos is the word. Good words. We're speaking good words about and to God. Does that do something for him? No, it does something for us. Okay. He blessed us and it does something for us. When we bless him back, it does something for us again because it's worship and praise. And that's the format for blessed be the God and Father. It's, it's, he's worthy of praise, he's worthy of our worship. It means speaking good words. Okay, there's another word. I wrote it down. Makarioi, M-A-K-A-R-I-O-I. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and so forth in the, in the Beatitudes, that's the word he was using. It does not mean speak good words. That word, makarioi, 
means happy and spiritually prosperous because of God's approval. So when he was pronouncing blessing on, when he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonas, for this did not come from human, no, flesh and blood did not teach this to you, but God my Father taught it to you in Matthew 16, 18, uh, actually 16, 17. Uh, that's the word. It means spiritually prosperous and happy because of God's approval. That's a different concept. When we bless God, we're offering worship to him and praise, and we're speaking good about him. <clears throat> the next word I've underscored there is Lord. The Greek word kurios is I, I, probably 100%. I, if, I, if it's not 100%, then the, it might be translated master now and then, but it means Lord. It means master. It means the owner. Uh, it's exactly the same as the Old Testament Hebrew word Adonai, which also means Lord. Or master. So when I read in the Old Testament, either little L or capital L, but then little O-R-D, it's Adonai or Adonai. In the New Testament, it's kurios. Those two words mean master or lord. Now, they weren't always used to mean master or lord. There was, they could be used casually. Uh, when Abraham called one of his enemies lord, he wasn't saying he was his master. He was using it the same way we would say mister or sir. Uh, you know, when my st Hispanic students at work address me as Senor, they're not calling me their Lord. That is what that means in Spanish. They're saying Sir. They're saying Mister. They're being respectful. Uh, I don't require that of them. They just do that. But one of them has called me Maestro for years now. And, and he explained to me, he says, Chad, if you've ever been somebody's teacher, they're going to call you Maestro for the rest of your life. So get used to it. All right. That doesn't mean I'm comfortable with that. <clears throat> but this word master and Lord, it could be used casually. When we refer to Jesus as master and Lord, we do not mean it casually. We mean literally he's our master, he's our owner, he's our Lord. He's the one to whom we owe worship and, and obedience and love and loyalty. That's what it means in regard to Jesus. But you'll see it used in Scripture regarding other people, and it it's the same as we would say, Mr. or Sir. It's a, it's a term of respect. Okay, But be aware, it does have a real meaning. In fact, actually in English, uh, when we say Mr. or Sir, Mr. comes from the old English master. And Sir comes from the old French, Sir, which means Lord. Okay, That's what it means. And yes, they are used casually, but they have deeper meanings. The next word I have underscored is mercy. This is the, the reverse, the flip side of grace. Mercy means God not giving me what I do deserve. We, we quoted Romans 6.23 where it says the wages, that means what I've earned. The wages of sin is death. The fact that he didn't give me that is mercy. He's not giving me what I do deserve. The other half of that verse where he says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's grace. He's giving me what I didn't earn and not giving me what I did earn. Without both of those things, without both grace and mercy, I would have no hope. Okay. Begotten again. Now this is a key issue. Uh, we don't say it very often because we'll just say born again, but there's a little bit deeper idea under begotten 
again. The, the word begotten carries the same idea as the English word sired, which we also don't use very often. But it means that God engendered us. It means that at a spiritual level, we are genetically his. Over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it says that his seed remains in you. You're genetically his. You're his real child. He didn't just pull you in off the street and give you some clean clothes to wear and say, try to stay out of trouble till dinner time. No, it's not like that. You're his real child. You've been born again into his family. And by that new birth, begotten by God. In fact, it means begotten from above. Some of the passages where it says born again, it, it literally says born from above. That he's your father. And because of that, you have an eternal standing with him. And because of that, it is possible for his nature, for the divine nature, to start showing up in your life. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but adopted children in our society are always not your gene pool. You're adopting somebody else's children, and they will never bear your characteristics because they're not even from the same gene pool. No matter how much you love them and they love you back and they may imitate you, they're, they're never going to come out looking like you because they're not from your gene pool. But God says we're supposed to end up looking like him. That we've been born again in the likeness of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 says that the new man is created in the righteousness and holiness of God. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a created being. This is your new nature created in you the day you trusted Jesus as your Savior. And he says that the new man is created in righteousness and true holiness in the likeness of God. This is why born again, the idea of be, being begotten again, born again, is a, is a key issue. It's not just a trendy thing to say. You know, John Denver said he was born again because he visited the Rocky Mountains. Give me a break. You might be enthralled by the view and like the clean air, but you're not born again by that. Okay. You have a new nature because of being begotten again by God. We have a living hope. That's the next thing I had underscored. Now, the word translated hope is, means the same thing as the English word hope. The, the Greek word is elpida, and it just means hope. But hope has, <clears throat> has, is, has three definitions, even in English, and certainly within the Scripture. One is uh, the happy confidence of good for our future, and we use it that way all the time. And that's how God wants us to feel and think toward our future not the hopeless, despairing, defeated thoughts of unbelief. And by, by the way, that is what causes those kind of feelings. It is unbelief. It means I'm not trusting God for my good today. It means I think bad things are going to happen, that God's not going to take care of us. Okay. That's why it does me so much good to hear things like what Rick and Kristen were sharing, that God's grace is evidence right here. You know. The second definition is that our hope is the ground or evidence on which that confidence rests. Our hope rests on the character of God and the truth of his word. Okay, so that's where we find hope is in the scripture and in the character of God. And the third definition is the object of that confidence. One is the source of the confidence, the ground of the confidence, the evidence. One is the feeling of confidence, but the third is the object of our confidence. In our case, it's Jesus himself. He's the one toward whom we direct all of our hopes, and he is our only hope. And it's a living hope. It's called a living hope in the 
newer translations, King James says a lively hope. It means the same thing in Old English. But it's to be realized in our lives now. It's present tense. This is not something, well, I hope when I die. No, no, now. Now. It's present tense. I'm to be ex experiencing this hope now. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is, present tense, this is eternal life that they may know, present tense again, gnosko, experiential knowledge, that they may know thee, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We're to be knowing him, present tense, continuous, on a daily basis in an experiential relationship with Jesus. He says, this is eternal life. So it's a living hope. It's something I'm supposed to be experiencing now. In John 5, 24, Jesus made that real clear. He says, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent me, present tense, has everlasting life. Not will have if you, when you die, if you stay good long enough. No. You have eternal life now. And the next phrase, he says, and shall not come into condemnation. That's your future. That's eternal. You're never going to be condemned by God. And he finally covers how you got there. He says, but he has crossed over from death into life. It's John 5, 24. If you haven't memorized that, you ought to. Your whole past, present, and future is wrapped up in that one promise. It's a living hope. By the way, over in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, we see that God wants you to know that you have eternal life. How do I know that? Because it says, this is the record that God has given us eternal life, and this eternal life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It says, and these things I have written unto you that you may believe, that you may know that you have everlasting life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He says the whole purpose of his writing this is so that you can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to hope it thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'll make the grade. No. If you're in Christ, you're already there. You're already seated with him in the heavenlies. This is permanent. Okay. So how do we enter into that living hope? By faith. How do we maintain that hope? By faith. If you want to maintain that feeling of happy confidence of good for your future, then you maintain an active belief, an active faith. Faith is not a force. It's not a feeling. It's, it's a choice that you make. You know, I, I watched today when you guys sat down, not one of you tested the pew before you sat down. Why? Because you had faith. You looked at it and you said, that's a pretty solid pew. And you went ahead and plopped down. And none of them broke. Even these little chairs up here, I didn't have to test it before I sat down. That's real faith. Those are kind of flimsy looking compared to the pews. But, and I'm pretty heavy. But the fact is, we make a choice to believe God. That's what faith is. It's a choice. The, the root word for both faith and believe is the Greek word peitho. It means to be persuaded. The, the Greek word for belief, to believe, is uh, pistuo, and the, for faith is pistis, and both of them come from this idea peitho. But sometimes the word peitho is translated obey because it carries the idea of believing enough to do something about it. Sometimes the obedience of faith is just that, is believing. Other times, I was believing enough to, in Abraham's case, to get up and leave town. God told him, I got some land for you. Why don't you walk with me? And he left. Ur of the Chaldees is right off the Persian Gulf. He ended up in Israel. That's a long walk. That's a faith walk. Okay. 
Faith is not just mental assent. Faith is an obedient response to a revealed truth. It's not just saying, yeah, yep, I believe Jesus died for the sins of the world. It means Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to place my hope, my only hope, in his blood of the cross as being sufficient to pay for my sins. That's saving faith. Doing something about it. Okay. What about the word resurrection? The word, the Greek word is anastasis. It means literally a rising up from or a standing up out of death. Okay. Uh, an argument frequently brought by unbelievers that, well, Jesus wasn't really dead, you know, he just was in a coma and they didn't recognize it as come on, guys. First place, the Roman regime, they dealt in death. They were they were experts at bringing people to death. Uh, and they knew good and well he was dead before they pulled him down off that cross. Okay. In the second place, the, the argument is frequently that, well, you know, we see that all the time today. The people die in a hospital and the doctors bring them back to life. No, they didn't. Dead is dead. It means your body cells have died. There's nothing to bring back. You're not going to feed in some more oxygen, get their blood going again, they'll come back to life. No, they won't. Once they're that kind of dead, they're dead. And Jesus was that kind of dead. So why only three days in the grave? Because after four days, even in, in a cold grave, you're going to start rotting. And it specifically says in Psalm 110, I think, it says that thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to suffer corruption, to see corruption, rotting, decay. Remember in, in John chapter 11, Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and the people said, guys, it's been four days. Lord, if you open that grave, it's going to smell. Jesus said, open the grave. I told you you're going to see the glory of God. Okay? God doesn't have any problem at all bringing back a really dead body. If you want to see what kind of dead God sees, go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. I know it's just a vision, but we're talking about bones that were not just fresh, they were dead, dry, dry bones, and God put them, brought them back to life, put them back together so they're whole skeletons, and then put flesh on them and skin on them and gave the breath of life back into them and raised, you're speaking about Israel, bringing Israel back as a nation. But God doesn't have any problem at all putting things back together. Revival is different than resurrection. Revival is a renewal of life that was in question. If a person, well, in fact, I got a letter from a missionary just last week, I think. Uh, the COVID virus has gotten up into the jungles of Venezuela, and this lady had died of the COVID virus. At least everybody thought she was dead. Uh, they wrapped her up in her hammock, tied it up, and they were going to cremate her, which is how they did things. But it was raining so hard they couldn't get the fire going. So they had to wait and wait and wait. And later in the day, somebody noticed that hammock's moving. They were unwrapped her. They were pretty excited about it. She says, well, she says, actually, I got to meet my dead granddaughters, and they told me I had a choice. I could either come back and minister to you guys, or I could go home with them. I wanted to come back to you. Okay, now, was it just a vision? Yeah, probably. Was she really dead? No. No. Her body wasn't dead. But she came real close to dying. Okay. That's a revival. Resurrection is the restoration of a life that was truly lost. And, and we're going to see that in Revelation chapter 20 because it says that the, the sea gives up its dead. These are ones that have been digested by sea critters, and they're coming back. And the earth gave up its dead. These are the ones that have been compost for years, and they're coming back. 
See, God doesn't have any problem bringing back that kind of debt. That's resurrection. We're not talking revival. We're talking resurrection. And he says that that's what we've been brought back to, the resurrection of the dead. There's three kinds of death mentioned in Scripture. One of them is a spiritual death, which is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where God warned Adam. By the way, Eve wasn't created yet. It was just Adam that got this warning. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, referring to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, in the day that you, thou shalt not eat of this tree, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Adam and Eve ate of this fruit. When Adam ate, both of them died spiritually. Nothing happened when she ate. He, let, he was apparently right there. He let her be the guinea pig. Nothing seemed to happen to her, so I guess I, I, guess I can eat it. When he ate, both of them died spiritually. How do I know? Well, because in, in Genesis chapter 4, we see that Adam died 930 years later physically. So it's a different kind of death. What's the difference? Well, the moment they ate that fruit, they were separated from fellowship with God. They were separated from God. They could not fellowship with him. They were dead spiritually. God restored them through a blood sacrifice. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. We're not going to go there today. But, but if you do come to the Bible study, that we're going to start, what day? Wednesday the 4th. Wednesday the 4th. Then, huh? Six. At 6 o'clock here in the church basement. Uh, we are going to be going through Genesis. So we're going to see how that worked, how there was a blood sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3 and that their sins were covered by the blood of that sacrifice. So there was a spiritual death and a physical death there. The second death we don't hear about until we get to Revelation chapter 20. And it's a permanent separation from God in the lake of fire. If a person physically dies while they're spiritually dead, never having been born again, then eventually, at the end of the millennial kingdom, it says the books will be opened, the dead are judged out of those books, and the, the dead are cast into the lake of fire. And then it flat out says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, this is the second death. So there's three kinds of death mentioned in Scripture. What do they all have in common? Separation. Okay. So this thing about separation is whenever we see the word dead, we want to think about what kind of dead are we talking about. Okay. There's sometimes when it's a real key issue to decide what kind of dead are we talking about. All right. The next thing he says that we're begotten again unto an inheritance that passes not away, that's incorruptible, and so forth. Let's go back and read that. Uh, <clears throat> verse 4 says, We're begotten again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The next four things he says are all about that inheritance. We're not told a great deal about that inheritance, but the following points are important to remember. We have the inheritance in Christ. It has nothing to do with how I'm doing. He says that that inheritance is mine because I'm in Christ. Okay. The inheritance itself is eternal. 1 Peter 1.4 says it doesn't fade away. Hebrews 9.15 says it's eternal. <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit, we see from Ephesians 1.14, is the earnest or down payment of our inheritance 
until the day of the redemption of the purchased possession, until Jesus comes to take you home, the Holy Spirit is your down payment for the inheritance that is yours. It has nothing to do with reward. It has nothing to do with how you live your life. It has entirely to do with the fact that you're in Christ. Okay, that's the inheritance. <clears throat> so he says four things about it. One is that it's incorruptible. Now, we usually associate that with moral corruption. You know, like we say, that government figure is corrupted. Uh, Okay, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's physically, he's talking about decay and rot and mold and wearing out, that kind of corruption. <clears throat> it can't deteriorate. And this is about the inheritance. It has nothing to do with the reward. We'll discuss that at another time. It says it's undefiled, which means there's nothing negative about your inheritance. There isn't some seamy side that you're going to find out later. You know, well, yeah, that's good, but look how it got there. You know. I mean, we, we worry about people like uh, Andrew Carnegie, who is known as a humanitarian, but if you read back and find out how he got that rich, he really, really stepped on a lot of people to get there, okay? But in his latter life, he took that money and, you know, did a lot of humanitarian stuff, so he looks good. Okay? There is no seamy side to your inheritance in Christ. Nothing negative about it. It says it fades not away. Your inheritance is not affected by time. It doesn't wither or oxidize or die on the vine. It's eternal, just like Jesus. He's the heir. We are joint heirs in him. And the inheritance we have is ours through him. It's not something we've got on our own. And the last thing he says about your inheritance is that it is reserved in heaven for you. Now, this is not like human reservations where might find out when you get there that it's been double booked and there is no seat on that airplane for you. Okay, what happened to my reservation? Well, I'm sorry, sir. You know, we put you on another flight. Okay, that really doesn't help very much. Okay, or a hotel. That's probably even worse. You've got no place to go. <clears throat> God says it's reserved for you. Reserved in heaven for you. It's not going to get double booked. It's not going to get sold out from under you leaving you nowhere to go. The reservation, God's reservation of your inheritance in Christ is for you personally, eternally. I've been using the word eternal a lot today. Uh, the, the Greek word for eternal is aeonion, which sounds kind of funny, but it means to the eons of the eons, to the ages of the ages. And unbelievers argue that, well, see, it doesn't mean forever like you think it does. See, it just means a very long time. It only means to the ages of the ages. Okay, let's take that idea. You see, that word, aeonion, is the word that's used to describe the eternality of God as well. So it means you're only going to last as long as God does. Will that be sufficient? It is for me. If I last as long as God does, I'm, I'm cool with that, okay? Aeonion does mean eternal. Yes, the literal meaning is to the ages of the ages, but it, it, it means eternal. Okay. Finally, the last phrase is about the believers, not the inheritance. As believers, he says, you are kept by the power of God. I remember when I was a very young believer, a woman told me, well, you're saved by faith, but you're kept by works. Let me tell you something. If at any point my salvation is dependent upon my works, then ultimately it's entirely dependent upon my works because I can guarantee you that's the weak link. You take an anchor chain and cut out one link and wrap a whole bunch of binder twine in that where that one link was, what's the limiting weight now? 
is whatever the strength of that binder twine is. And frankly, it's not even going to hold up the rest of the chain, let alone that anchor. Okay. If my works are at any point part of why I'm saved, then I'm lost. Because that's going to be the weak link. God says my works have nothing to do with it. He says I'm kept by the power of God. Okay. My salvation is ultimately only dependent upon the power of God. How much more secure can I feel about my position in Christ, knowing that I'm saved by faith only, by his grace, and I'm kept by his power only, neither of which have anything to do with me? How much confidence can it give me in my future, in my current service, knowing that I literally cannot lose and I absolutely cannot be lost? It's hard to even grasp the idea. Because from human perspective, that don't make sense. You know, I've had people vehemently argue, you can so sin that God will reject you. Man, I'm going to go with God's word. He says I can't be lost. He says I'm never going to be condemned by God. Jesus promised that. I, I don't have to trust human reasoning. I'm going to trust God's word. And he says that we're kept by the power of God through faith. That's the avenue of approach to God. He says, by, by grace you've been saved through faith. That's the avenue of approach. That's how you approach him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, because he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's how we approach God. That's not how you're saved. That's how you got there. The salvation was by grace. You're kept by God's power. You approach him through faith. Unto salvation, we're kept unto salvation. Our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us, and it's secure because you have been, past tense, declared to be the children of God through the new birth. You're eternally placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It says that you've been baptized into the body of Christ by one spirit. That's eternal. Okay, We have these things now. We don't feel it necessarily. It's ours now. We don't necessarily see it. But there is coming a day when you're going to see it, you're going to feel it, it'll be completely tangible, you'll see Jesus face to face. Howard's there right now. He's seeing him face to face. People talk about, yeah, your dad's seeing you, and he's proud of you. If my dad's saved, he's not looking at me, he's looking at Jesus. He's got better things to do, people. Sorry, Howard's not thinking about you right now, Lois. He can walk again. He's walking and leaping and praising God. Standing before Jesus in the flesh, in person. Okay. Jesus said, John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them unto me is greater than I, and no man can snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father and I are one. Check it out. John chapter 10, verse 27, 28, 29. So in conclusion, I don't know if it's occurred to you, but over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it talks about the helmet of salvation. What's a helmet do? Protects your head, right? Protects your brain, protects your mind. The helmet of salvation is this security of the believer. Knowing that you can't be lost, knowing that God has forever reserved your inheritance in heaven for you, 
is what protects your mind against Satan's constant attacks saying, you sin too much now, God's going to get you. God's going to drop you like a hot potato, man. He didn't want people like you. We don't need your kind. <laughs> no. No. God says that I'm never going to be condemned, that Jesus has given to me eternal life and I will never perish. Protects your mind from the attacks of Satan. So spend some time mulling over these things. Consider how it affects your relationship with God and the world around you, knowing that you're eternally secure in Christ, that he is eternally your Lord and Savior and the Master of all things. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're so limited in our understanding. We're limited in what we can see and feel, and we forget that we approach you by faith. We do not approach you by sight and by feeling and by what makes sense to us, but by faith in your written word and you as the living word. Please open our eyes to the spiritual realities surrounding us. Help us to see the world through your eyes and raise us up to serve you in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.